0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Did medieval people really have sex in churches? What was a boy bishop? And why did women have to sit on the safe side of a church in the Middle Ages? Well, Professor Nicholas Orme, the author of a new book, Going to Church in Medieval England, will be answering all of these questions and more in the latest episode of our Everything You Wanted to Know series. That's where we put your questions on a particular topic to a leading expert. As you may have guessed, this week the subject is the Medieval English Church – And asking the questions was our content director, David Musgrove. First up, why was the church so important in medieval England?
1: That's because it's a lot more than just um, a way of connecting with God, which I suppose it is nowadays. It's a whole belief system because Christianity undertakes not merely to explain one's relationship with God, but it also sets out to explain history. I mean, a lot of the Bible is history. It's also science. Um, It's also ethics, how you should behave. So whole areas of study that we would now uh, separate off as science or sociology or politics is at that time all within religion. That's one reason why religion is so important. A second reason is that um, the church is almost a half of the state. So it does a lot of things which nowadays we would look to um, uh, uh, the government to do. So it it deals with education, it deals with morality, it deals with charity, um, things like that. And then finally, it's got a social role, which it's lost nowadays. Because on a Sunday morning, nowadays, there are lots of different things you can do. But if you imagine yourself back in a particularly a rural community in the Middle Ages, and it may be a community that's actually quite scattered, because half of England doesn't have villages the um the the Northern and western parts of it of of England are scattered communities of farms and hamlets. so the church is a wonderful place to meet, and it's also a centre where if you want to get something going socially you will you will do it. So you get companies of the maidens of the parish. these are the girls from twelve to up to marriage the young men of the parish, the wives of the parish. So church is not just a place to meet people on a Sunday, it's actually a place where you can organise your own social group to do things. So for all these reasons, the church in the past has a, a huge importance that it can't possibly have today. And when people talk about somehow the church trying to get back to and recovering some Um, state that it had in the past. That's impossible, because society has moved on. The church has to take up a different role nowadays.
2: Thank you. And a second search engine question that a lot of people ask is, what was the medieval church structure?
1: Well, there was a huge uh, structure. And again, I suppose a modern uh, parallel would be something like government, where you think about Um, you you think about Downing Street, the cabinet, parliament, the ministries, um, you think about local government, you think about all the different agencies that there are. Um, It's all very complicated, but somehow it kind of works together. So in the case of the medieval church, you've got a hierarchy with the Pope at the top and then archbishops, bishops, archdeacons, parish clergy. Um, And they're all one kind of operation that's ultimately going back down to sundry worship in parish churches. Um, You've then got all the the religious orders. You've got monks, friars, nuns, um, templars and hospitallers. You've got all these organisations that are also part of the church but are not part of the, um, the basic system um and then you've got a tremendous lay um input into the church and this is I think the one thing that we always underestimate about the medieval church the extent to which it's under lay control so bishops in England are appointed by the crown or rather they're chosen by the crown the 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 crown makes a nomination the pope appoints but the real power lies with the crown so the bishops are all the king's men and then at a local level you've only got to think of the situation of a lord of the manor and the parish church he is the top dog locally and everything that goes on in the parish church is going to be subject to his um, uh, approval basically Um, and finally of course there is the lay input of ordinary people if ordinary people don't want to go to church Uh, They don't go. Um, That's something we underestimate. We think somehow the church had a power of control, like that, say, which Hitler or Stalin had in the 1930s. The church didn't. It did did have sanctions against people going to church. But like modern law, like making people drive at 30 miles an hour or whatever, it's one thing to have the laws. It's frightful difficulty actually getting people to obey them. So... It's an incredibly complicated structure and it's different, really, from any modern uh, firm like Tesco or... Sainsbury's where you can simply send out an order that the price of baked beans will go up by 2p there's nothing like that in the middle ages partly because of course of the communication difficulties it takes an awfully long time to get a message from one person to the other and that's no guarantee that that person will actually do it
2: um, so we'll come back to the question of of uh, attendance by uh, by the populace and and the uh, and church control on people. We've got some good questions on that. But before we do another good search engine question, uh, which a lot of people want to know is uh, where did the church get its money? Because we have this sense, this idea that the church in in uh, in the Middle Ages was fabulously rich. I don't know how far that's that's true or not.
1: Yes. Well, you see, the church is not a a single body, so you can't see it. Say that. Um the Church is rich any more that you can say that British society today is rich I and mean, you can say it is rich in in comparison with parts of the world, but then there's enormous variations within it so you've got um at one extreme archbishops and bishops who are on uh huge Uh, salaries, because, of course, in those days, they had to um, bear the cost of their own administration. There's no such thing as a personal salary. You get a big lump of income to run your operation, basically, so it's not all yours. And then you get down at the far end, you know, the poor chaplains and curates who are helping out in the parishes, and they're on three, four, five pounds a year, which is pretty low. That's not much above the the income or probably even below the income of a a well-off peasant. So there's a a huge variation there. Where did the money come from? Well, the church was endowed, again, um, piecemeal. Individual people over centuries gave money to the church in in terms of lands, particularly to support monasteries, say, because if uh, monks are secluded from the world, so they can't actually go out and make money, they've got to have resources that actually funnel money or food into them. Um, and then in the parish uh context, the parish clergy are supported by tithes and offerings. Um, tithes are the most important part of their income, and that is uh, you get one-tenth of the um the uh agricultural production, the, the corn and the and the barley and the rye, and one-tenth of all the animals, the calves and the piglets and, and the lambs and other lesser things as well, like honey and um, almost anything you... you cheese or milk or whatever. Um, And the offerings are are, are actually much less. They are um, offerings of money that are made at certain times of the year or when you get um, baptised or married or or buried and so forth. And that's what produces the income of the parish uh, clergy. But you've only got to look, if if you've ever looked at a map of English parishes, you'll see that it's an extraordinary jigsaw. There are big ones and little ones, and there are town ones and country ones, there are rich ones and poor ones. So just being a parish priest doesn't at all uh, indicate what sort of income you will have. It can go up to, in medieval values, as much as eighty or hundred pounds a year, which probably today would be something like um, half a million pounds. Or it can go down to this uh, three or four pounds a year at the other end.
2: Very interesting. So some some wild extremes there. Now, now look, you've mentioned a couple of times monasteries um, when we were talking about the medieval church structure, for instance, and that's uh, another search engine question, which is. What was the difference between a church and a monastery in this period?
1: Well, a church is any kind of religious building, and um, it's sometimes applied to even to small chapels. Um, So a a monastery is a church. Um, Basically, there are two sorts of churches. There are churches that are staffed by a single person that's a parish church although there may be extra clergy there but essentially the parish church has its rector or vicar who is in charge of of running it Um, And then you have um, churches that are staffed by a group of people. So they include um, monasteries, friaries, nunneries. Uh, But you can also have um, churches that are staffed by a number of parish clergy. And places like Eton College or Winchester College, the the Oxford and Cambridge Colleges would be examples of that. So basically there's the, the church that's uh, run by a single person, and then there's the church that it, that, it, that contains a body of people who run it.
2: Now we've got a question here from Jane Watson on Twitter, and you uh, you, you sort of alluded to this in an earlier answer, but um, but perhaps you could expand a bit. How much did the church influence the lives of ordinary people? Did it affect everything they did on a spiritual basis, or was it more a set of rules to follow, rather like secular laws today?
1: Yes, well the church has a spiritual um, influence, it it wants you to attend church, Uh, it wants you to go to church for the main events of your life, your birth, your marriage and your death, Uh, it wants you to pray, Um, so that's one sort of influence. Um, nowadays that's a voluntary influence you 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 do it or you don't do it as you wish. The difference in the past was that the church had rules which it was to a certain extent able to enforce so it required attendance on Sundays and major festivals um, and it also as I started out by saying it has a jurisdiction over people, it can enforce its view of morality on people. There are church courts, and if you engage in extramarital sex, for example, or slander people, um, or engage in usury, you, you are summoned before the church court, not the court of the king, to have that uh, matter dealt with. Um, it's only in the 16th century that the crown starts to take an interest in these sorts of spheres, begins to take them over from the church. But up to the reign of Henry VIII and thereabouts, um, a lot of what we now regard as um, the the sort of discipline of life is actually um, exercised by the church and not by local government or by the crown courts.
2: Right, now then. That's the general questions out of the way. Moving on to uh, church buildings themselves. And obviously, um, England and Britain more generally is, is full of marvellous medieval churches to, to go and look at. So people are interested in that. Maddie Hodges on Facebook asks, what is recognisable from medieval churches in modern churches in the UK?
1: Yes, well, there, there are there were about nine and a half or 10,000 medieval parish churches in England and um, a vast number of those are are still extant. I mean, they may have been remodelled, reshaped, uh, but they'll have um, medieval material in the walls and perhaps the fittings. And then medieval churches were widely imitated in the 19th century, so that a lot of churches that you will see that look medieval are actually Victorian, but the Victorians have painstakingly tried to reproduce what a medieval church was like Um, in English history you do get two different periods when the middle ages matters less one is the 18th century when you think of st paul's cathedral which which doesn't look quite like a medieval church it looks like something much more more classical and in the present day again if you thought of coventry cathedral uh for example you're you're looking at, at something that is rather different as a building but they still will always follow the same template so that basically they're in two uh different sections. You've got a chancel or a choir, which is where services happen. And then to the west of that, you have a nave, which is where people stand or sit to watch what is going on. And then you have an altar up at the east end and a font at the west end and a, a porch on the outside. So every church will have certain features, even if it's built today, which actually go back to the Middle Ages.
2: So, so were they? They were. Were they following a sort of a, a standard template then? In when they when they were building them?
1: That's right. Yes, you you always have to have a, a, a chancel and a nave. Otherwise, it will vary a lot depending on. Um, What you can afford, Um, and this basic two-cell structure, you can add to, you can put out wings, which we call uh, transepts, you can widen the church and put um, corridors down the sides, which we call aisles, you can build on chapels, you can put up a tower. Uh, or, or more than one tower, if you want to. So you can elaborate the plan, but it always comes down essentially to this two units. It, come, it comes down to this, this the, these two units of uh, chancel and nave. And if you go into a tiny chapel in the countryside, um, you will still see the, the remains of the same thing. You, that you have an area for worship and an area for watching
2: and trying to drill into maddie's question a bit more specific specifically is there anything that's sort of quintessentially medieval in terms of features in these churches that would enable you to say this is you know this is this is a standout medieval feature so to, to enable you to say well this isn't a later victorian edition or anything like that
1: well, the Victorians were very good at um, imitating the Middle Ages, actually. Um, the only thing they tended to differ about was which bit of medieval architecture they should follow. Uh, shall we do it in the um, 13th century style, or the 14th century style, or the 15th century style? So or, uh, you, you, you get different versions of it. But it will often be quite difficult to uh, distinguish a Victorian church from a medieval church unless you're a bit of an expert. And uh, I remember once showing um, a primary school around my local church, and the headmaster was amazed when I told him it was built in 1852. He always assumed it went back to about 1352.
2: Here's a good question uh, that uh, that a lot of people ask on uh, on search engines, which is: Were medieval churches colourful?
1: Um, well, they were up to a point. So they wanted they they wanted. Christ to have a nice place of worship, so the the altar, which is at the east end of the church, will have a a hanging of of coloured fabric on it. Any other altars will will have similar hangings, and the clergy for the major services will appear in very nice vestments. But, of course, that depends on what you can afford. And when we say very nice, yes, you're talking about Canterbury Cathedral or um, the the King's Chapel at Windsor. But if you're talking about some very poor place up in the hills, um, the vestments and the autographs may be rather shabby. Um, and moth-eaten because we can't afford new ones or we're we're, we're just not bothered about them. Um, Again, you can have very nice um, window glass in churches, coloured window glasses, and we've got some some wonderful examples of that at Canterbury Cathedral and some of our parish churches uh, have it as well. But a lot of churches will not be able to afford that. Um, And it's often thought that all medieval churches were... Um, painted up uh, inside, that their their walls were decorated. Well, they were um, up to a point. Sometimes the decoration will actually be quite simple. It will it will be simply be imitation brickwork on plaster, or or, or stencil patterns. To um, so get really good um, wall paintings. Well, there are a number, and then there were a lot more in the past, but it doesn't follow that every church had them. And we've got plenty of complaints about bad church interiors. So don't imagine that this was a, a wonderful golden age of beauty. Uh, It was in some places, and there were also very beautiful images of Virgin Mary and and saints and so on. But you also hear about images that have been scratched or lost bits, uh, which need repainting, Um, because in the end, all church history comes down to human nature. And human nature covers a vast range of of enthusiasm and negligence, basically. So you'll get some churches that were very nicely appointed and looked after, and you'll get others that weren't.
2: So um, the Exeter Cathedral, the, the magnificent building there, and Exeter being uh, the university that uh, you taught at and I, I studied at. And if I, if, if, if you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I thought the west front of that has been shown to be like a beautiful polychromatic um, display where they painted all the all the figures that stand outside at the front of the cathedral. Is that is that is that not right? Uh, and is that a uh, is that like a um, not a not a particularly common sort of feature? No, and
1: um, that that that's that's perfectly right, and a lot. Of- of what we now see in churches, um, particularly monuments, actually, when you see these knights and ladies um, recumbent on tombs, we see them just as stone, but they would originally have been painted. They, they, they were meant to look realistic. But, uh, you know, things wear out. And I'm sure the west front of Exeter Cathedral, with all these beautifully painted statues, when it was finished in about 1350, it must have looked very nice indeed. Uh, within thirty years or so, it was probably beginning a, a bit grubby, and, um, and and there were lichens and uh, and, uh, and moss growing, and so on. And then it depends on somebody having the effort and the money to actually put it back again.
2: Now, uh, this this is a great question, which I'd love to know the answer to. Another search engine question: What did medieval churches smell like?
1: Um, a mixture of damp candle. Um, smoke and incense.
2: Uh, so, would it have been quite a heady mix? Would you, when you went in, would it have would it have been quite a unique sort of smell? Do you think?
1: Um, well, if you'd just been in after a service, you'd smell the incense. Um, if you went in a, a couple of days later, you wouldn't to the same extent. I think you would have smelt the, the the damp, and of course, if you'd been. In there uh, at a well-attended service, you would have smelt humanity.
2: Now, I'm just thinking. Uh, we, uh, this is a question which uh, which wasn't in the list, but occurs to me now. We talked about uh, what uh, churches looked like and smelt like. So, to complete the sensory experience, what what did they sound like? What, are you able to answer that?
1: They certainly understood principles of sound, and uh, and I think uh, it's been shown that certain churches are designed in order to project sound or not or not to absorb sound. Um, But um, the sound that you get, again, it will depend on the church. Wealthy churches with a lot of clergy and choirs will do a lot of uh, elaborate music. Uh, The basic music is plain song, which is sung in unison. Um, The more elaborate music, which comes in particularly in the 15th century, is called polyphony, and that's music in different parts. And you'll get that in the really top-rate churches and cathedrals and royal chapels. Um, In parish churches, um, the the music will be much more basic and uh, it it won't be so well performed. It may be only one priest doing his uh, plain song and therefore you're in his hands entirely. There's nobody else to help. Um, So again, just as I've said that there's a, there's a huge difference in sizes of churches, layout of churches, decoration of churches, music in churches will vary enormously as well.
2: So, do you imagine when you when you go into some of these larger churches, or even smaller parish churches, they all have um, uh, speaker systems, don't they, going around the pillars and stuff, and they have have modern uh, modern uh, audio systems there, um, which which are there for a reason so that people can hear. Do, do you think that people would have been able to? Uh, to properly hear services um, in, in the past when clearly they didn't have those sorts of facilities?
1: No, um, they are dependent on the carrying power of the human voice. And and in a large church, if you're at the back of the congregation, um, you're not going to hear so well. Um, one thing that we ought to discuss at some point is that where you sit in church is not where you would like to sit. It's where you ought to sit. And so the... the, the um, Leaders of society are up at the East End so they can hear well. And the further back the church you go towards the West, the lower the social rank. So it's the servants and possibly the children who are right at the back and will hear least well. Um, You've also got the interesting point that in the Mass, which is the principal Sunday service the most solemn part of the Mass is not spoken. This is the prayer of consecration, or the canon as it's known, and it is said by the priest in a very low, inaudible voice, because it is so holy. So at that point, uh, the the, the church suddenly becomes silent. Uh, It won't be entirely silent because there'll be somehow a movement of, uh, of, of of from the congregation there'll be these, these these sort of echoing sounds that you get in concerts there'll be people a few people mumbling prayers and so forth but medieval worship is not just about sound it is also about silence
2: now this leads us nicely into into our next session which is about kind of the 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 church experience um you've talked about this one a little bit um and this is a big question Uh, search engine question, did medieval peasants go to church?
1: Uh, Well, did anybody in the Middle Ages go to church? And the answer is yes and no. You are expected to go to church. And that means uh, not, on, not on weekdays, because you have to work, but Sundays and festivals, and there are actually about 40 or 50 important festivals during the year. So on about 90 days of the year, you are expected to be in church, at least on, sun, on, on the morning for the morning service. Um, but who is going to make you go? There were inducements to go. Obviously, in that um, uh, there are um, there are there inducements to go. There are there are um, pious people who want to go to church. There are people who want to go to church to socialise. But there are also people who would much rather stay at home and either lie in bed or actually get on with some work. Um, if you've got um, a field that's coming up for um, reaping or whatever Um, that's what you want to do if you're a a shoemaker who's been making shoes all the week Sunday is a wonderful place to go off and sell them go to other churches because that's a great um, gathering place for people and sell your shoes And the church has this problem. It it can't, in the end, uh, impose 100% attendance. It has to recognise that certain people needn't be in church. So shepherds are not expected to be in church. Fishermen are not expected to be there because they've they've got to be out. If if it's the right day, they've got to be out getting the herring in. Uh, Servants... A bit, a bit equivocal about servants. I mean, the, the rich want to go home after church and have their dinner. Who's making the dinner? So there has to be a bit of an exception for, for servants. And in the end, actually making somebody go to church is, is a difficult business, the priest can tell them off. He can refuse to um, to, to hear their confession or give them um, communion at Easter. Uh, he can um, report them to the church court. But it's all terribly cumbersome. Making people go to church is, is like making people... Uh, clear up after their, their dog mess. You can have the, the rule, you can have the bins there, but it's actually very, very difficult to do it. And if you find somebody who's doing it, then it's a long process actually to... Uh, to enforce it, to find them or, 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 or whatever. And so there's always going to be a proportion of people in the parish who don't often go to church. I don't think you get away with going never, but you could get away with it to a certain extent. After all, you could always say it wasn't feeling very well. <laughs> and that would cover quite a lot of things. And I think in the end, the people who actually get... Um, called to the church court and get fined or whatever, there are people who are unpopular in the community anyway, because if if you're not going to church, it's quite likely you're upsetting people in other ways, you're being antisocial. And in the end, everybody says, yeah, we had enough of this. Send them to the church court and, and get them sorted out. But it was much too difficult a process to make sure that 100% of people were there. I wouldn't like to put a a number on uh, how many there were on a particular Sunday. Easter is absolutely compulsory for adults. Um, And so almost everybody is there then. I think Christmas and um, Pentecost or Whitsuntide, They're also compulsory, but they're they're not everybody there for those. And then once you go down to ordinary Sundays, it's a lot less. You've also got to remember that children are not required to go to church. And children are at one third of the population.
2: Okay, right. You've answered um, a, a couple of other questions there as well. So you answered Inez Prohensa's uh, question about whether people were forced to attend, so that's good. I think you've said uh, that wasn't necessarily the case. And then the search engine question, when did medieval churches serve, church services happen? You've answered that, but there was a, a subsidiary bit to that, which is how long did services last for? Are you able to, to tell us how long a church service would have gone on for?
1: Yes, there, there are, as far as parish churches are concerned... And monasteries are different. As far as parish churches are concerned, there are two services every day, matins and evensong. Matins is at about seven o'clock in the morning. It, it, it's it's sun after daybreak, and it's going to last for about an hour and a half. And then in the afternoon, there is evensong, which is um, going to happen at about three o'clock in the afternoon and is going to go on until about half past four. So those are the two services that the clergy have to do every day, irrespective of whether whether anybody is at them. They have to go into church, they have to say those prayers uh, through every day. Some people will be there on a weekday, of course, it will only be um, the most pious or the most leisured. who can can take a bit of time off to do it. The other service, which you will always have on a Sunday or a festival day, and in many churches you'll have it every day, is Mass. That will happen um, after Matins, probably about nine, and will last for an hour. So uh, in a a normal church, uh, there's about four hours of worship happening every day. But... You don't necessarily uh, have to go to all of those. Uh, on a Sunday, you are recommended to go to all of them. But uh, even pious people, I think, didn't necessarily do that.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
1: Churches are places for sex, uh, as are churchyards. I mean, they, they, they are... You see, going to church is, a, is an acceptable way of leaving home. So if you want to, leave, to, to meet up with a lover, uh, going to church, particularly on a, a weekday, is, is, a, is, is a good way of meeting up. And if you want a, a very quiet place, uh, a churchyard, particularly at night, it, it also has its attractions.
2: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate? you need indeed. Right. Now, here's, here's another question which we've sort of talked around a bit, but um, perhaps you can try and give a, a specific answer. And this is from Ruth Wilson on Twitter, who wants to know, what was the experience of church, uh, a church going like for an ordinary person? Were they seated or standing? Did they join in the response? Uh, did they sing or or did they just listen? So you've talked about this a little bit in terms of where people sat, but can you give us a sense about what it was actually like to be in a medieval church service?
1: Yes, well, seating, as far as we can see, comes in in the 14th and 15th centuries. We don't really know that much about uh, churches' how they were used before 1300. But the likelihood is that there weren't very many seats, except for the nobility and gentry who would be up in the choir or chancellor of the church with the clergy, Uh, that other people... Uh, would would not have had seats unless they brought their own. You, you could bring a stool or something to sit on, but that you're probably dealing uh, up to, say, 1350 with, um, with a standing congregation or, or, or a congregation that kneels at the most important point, which in the Mass is when you consecrate the bread and wine of the Eucharist and the priest holds it up to be venerated, and you are supposed to kneel, or at least bow and genuflect uh, when that happens. Um, During the 14th century, it seems that seating becomes more and more common. What is happening is that the uh, upper orders of society have got their seats, at the best part of the church, the East End. And the rest of society is wanting to imitate this, and it's gradually going down. Um, So it's, first of all, be the wealthy farmers who want seats. And then, because, as I've already explained, um, social differentiation is so important, in the end, the parish church authorities are really obliged to put in general seating. You can't have everybody turning up with a seat or putting their own seat in. You've got to actually grade it so that, as I said, the important are at the front of the church, the less important are at the back of the church. So by the 15th century, it's becoming very common for uh, a church to have um, what we often see nowadays are a whole rows of pews or forms. And then they will be allocated by the church wardens, who are the, the lay officers who actually run the parish church. You, you, you will be allocated a seat, and that is the seat in which you have to sit. You don't, you don't just uh, go and sit in anybody's seat. Um, as to the experience in, in a service, well, the services are in Latin. And they are said or, or said and sung in the chancel, which has got a big screen between it and the, and the nave. So the service is quite a long way away from you. You are not expected, as you are in a modern church, to follow the service, to say responses. That's done by the parish clerk. Um, you are expected to watch the service, almost like we do when we go to a concert. We're part of the experience. We listen to Beethoven's Fifth symphony and we're part of the experience, but we're not playing it. And that's what it's like in a medieval church. So the performers are up in the chancel. You're listening and watching. You're, you're being devout. Um, you're, you're spiritually with it. Um, you may have a, a rosary and you, 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 you say your basic prayers with your clicking off your beads, or you've got a a prayer book with you if you're literate and you're reading that. Not the same book as the clergy you're using, a different book. So you've got this um, murmur of voices, uh, subdued murmur of voices that you would have got in the nave alongside the service that is in the chancel. Now, the one thing that people have not previously understood is that there is quite a lot of English in the Latin services. And this this has probably always been the case, but it's becoming particularly clear by the 15th century. So um, there are three or four points in the service when English is used. At the beginning of the service... Um, everybody is sprinkled with holy water and is um, uh, treated to a, an English verse, which um, I- encourages them to, um, to 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 give their attention to the service. In the middle of the service, you get announcements. You get prayers for the king, for the um, for the crops, for the uh, for individual people. You get a bit of a sermon if you're lucky, and then at the end of the service, um, you get some more English, and you get um, given a, a piece of bread because you don't receive the communion bread and wine at all. Uh, except that you get the bread at Easter, not the wine. Um, But on a a normal normal Sunday, when the Mass is over, the priest blesses a loaf of bread, which is provided by each family in the parish in turn, and it's broken up into little bits. And there's some English um, words to accompany this. and Then you get your bit, um, and that's effectively your communion. So it's... um, not a, at all like a modern church experience. You, you were not expected to take part in the words. You're expected to do your own thing. And it was quite a, a change and an unwelcome change for some people at the Reformation when the Church of England suddenly required people to take part in the service. And there's a very amusing thing I came across when uh, Queen Mary became uh, queen in 1553, and we briefly went back to Catholicism. Somebody said, hey, this is great. Now when I go to church, I can do my own thing. I don't have to take part in the service.
2: So you've 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 sort of answered this next question as well, and, and particularly when you're talking about the uh, elements of, of English vernacular in the services. But uh, a popular search engine query is: Did medieval people actually understand what was going on in these church services?
1: Well, they would have uh, they would have understood through uh, long uh, they would have understood through long familiarity with the service. Obviously, um, the mass is. Uh, has basically the same form every time so if you've been there as you should be 52 times a year from the age of um, 14 you're going to know the service pretty well and the priest should have explained the the salient points of it in his sermons but medieval parish clergy didn't do much preaching they were told uh that four times a year they ought to explain basic things to the congregation and that's often as much as people got so they they it would have been explained what was happening at the beginning and uh why this or that um action or prayer was important and so on that they would have they would have known all this uh, simply by by experience um But otherwise, no, as I've said, they're not expected to take part in the service. They're they're expected to be be there, um, to be devout and to follow it, and that it will somehow give them um, spiritual cleansing and power by being present at it, that you don't need to be intellectually involved with it. To go back to my Beethoven analogy, I mean, I don't know the first thing about what he's doing with his notes, but I just get the feel of power or whatever it is from the music. And that's what it was like to be in a medieval service.
2: Now, you've, you've already um, spoken about this uh, next question a couple of times, but I wonder if you might uh, expand on it slightly. This is from Jenny Nichols on Twitter, who wants to know about uh, children in church. Um, uh, her question was, did kids go to the same service for the same length of time or did they have the equivalent of a of a Sunday school type thing? Now, you've already said that children weren't required to go to church. So, what, so did they go um, uh, or were there other facilities and provisions made for them?
1: Well, we know that small children were often taken to church because they couldn't be safely left at home. And we do have some examples of accidents that happened when people, when parents left small children at home, possibly in the um, care of an, an elder sibling, and, and trouble happened. So small children were often taken to church, and we actually get complaints about this. Adults in congregations are often very... Um, Um, unforgiving about children in church and their restlessness or the noise they make. And that was the case in the 15th and 16th centuries as well. Um, You will also get children going to church, I think, because... It's something that's going on. Again, going back to the, the, the countryside situation, not a lot is going on. And particularly on a Sunday morning, most people are in church anyway. So there's nothing going on in the smithy or the inn or the, to um, uh, uh, attract your attention there. So children will turn up and sometimes they they are mischievous. I mean, we've got examples of, of children... Being being a nuisance in church or coming in and uh, messing messing uh, around with things, but no, there is absolutely no concept of a children's service except once or twice a year, and this is um the boy bishop service, which happens either on St. Nicholas Day, which is the 6th of December, or on the Holy Innocence Day, which is the 28th of December, or sometimes on both occasions. And on one or both of those days, um, you have a, a, a boy leading the services in church, and he is dressed up like a bishop with a little um, bishop's hat or mitre on and a, and a bishop's staff and he presides over the service and he gives um uh, a, a blessing and he has a an entourage of other children probably boys actually rather than girls girls get a rather poor look in in in, in medieval church services um and then there's a lot of um out-of-church activity. There's then, they, they go round the, the, the village or the town begging, essentially, for food and money. And um, in some places, it's quite elaborate. In in York, um, which is our, our, our northern our, our Archbishop's Cathedral, the um, boys there went on horseback out into Yorkshire for as much as a week, and they stayed at monasteries and they stayed at manor houses and they were feasted and they came back with a considerable amount of money, I mean, uh, £10 or £20, pounds, which they then divided up among themselves. But that's that's the high end of the, the thing. The the, the, the parish uh, boy bishops, I think, would have been lucky if they'd got much more than a, a, a few apples or a, or a half pint of, of ale as they went round the parish. But no, there's nothing like um, a a, a Sunday school that begins to come in at the Reformation in 1549. Um, The the English prayer book of 1549 says that uh, the parish priest must hold a class in church in the afternoons. Um, there was there was a new thing called the Catechism, which you had to learn, which explained the uh, Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments and the Creed, and you had to be word perfect in that. But that's a new thing that that, that comes in, and Sunday schools are even later than that. They're they're really eighteenth, nineteenth centuries.
2: Uh, right, just a, just a couple more. Um, you, you talked about um, uh, girls in church not having uh, that that much of a a role there 's a question here on on uh, on Google, which is were men and women separated in church services?
1: This is a very interesting question, and it 's actually very hard to answer um, and I think sometimes they were and sometimes they weren 't. It appears that Wealthy people were not separated because we hear of um nobility and gentry, merchants and their wives sitting together. And as I've previously explained, this would be in the eastern part of the church. They'll get into the uh the, the, the chancel or choir of the church, or they'll get into side chapels and they'll be there. Um the rest of the congregation may well have been separated, but it's probably varied locally. There are certainly examples of churches where they place the, the women and the men separately. Women usually on the north side of the church, men on the south side. Um, there's a reason for that, which I could go into uh, explaining if necessary. But... Um, But equally, there are other customs. Um, There is a custom that particular seats shall be tied to particular properties. So that if you live in Willowbrook Farm, as it were, that is where that's the seat that you have to sit in. And then the man and the wife and the children will all sit in that seat. So it's one of these things that obviously varied locally.
2: You'd better explain that point you just mentioned that uh, that you could expand on about the north side.
1: Yes, um, uh, the north side of the church is the safe side of the church and the south side of the church is the unsafe side of the church. Now, you have to imagine what a medieval church looked like inside. Uh, between the chancel at the east end and the nave at the west end, you've got this screen which is about twelve feet high and is open windows, not not glazed, so that you can get the, the sound through from the chancel, but you can't actually get into the chancel. Above the screen, you have the rood loft, which is a kind of gallery. In the middle of the rood loft, you have um, the rood, which is Christ on the cross. So he is facing west. And on his right hand side is the Virgin Mary. And on his left hand side is the, is, is St. John the Evangelist. So the right hand side is the safe side. That's the side of the Virgin Mary. It's the side of the saved. If you've ever seen these pictures of the Last Judgment, the, the figures on the north side of Christ are all going up to heaven. And the, figures on the south side are going down to hell now the women have to be on the safe side because they're more open to temptation than men are so is the view the men are rather sturdier at standing up for um, to evil so say so they are on the dangerous side
2: Glad, glad I pushed you on that. Fascinating.
1: I don't expect anybody who's listening to that to agree with it.
2: No, of course, of course. Another uh, really big search engine question is, um, did medieval people go to confession in churches? And if so, h- how did that work? What did that look like?
1: Yes, that, and that's another very interesting question I've been um, investigating. Everybody from 1215 onwards in the Catholic Church is required to go to confession once a year. And the time to go to confession was in Lent. Uh, Lent is, roughly speaking, the six weeks before Easter in in March and and early April. And um, you you have to go to church for confession. You're you're not confessed in your own home. And it was a considerable burden for the clergy to do this because... um, as I've explained, they had their, their morning and afternoon services to do. So they've only got a, 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 a restricted window of time between 10 and 3 in which to do this. And they've also got to have their dinner and their, their main meal in that bit of time as well. And if you've got a Parish of average size, you're probably going to have about 250 adults. And that's actually quite a lot of people to do an annual confession with. How long are you going to spend? Um, if you If you really go through everything that one is supposed to believe and ask if they believe it and go through everything that one is supposed to have done and not to have done and go through all that, you could be there for a couple of hours and clearly that wasn't possible. I think the average uh, lenten confession must have taken about fifteen or twenty minutes. It must have been a pretty quick trot through the subject. Of course, pious people went to confession more often, but the only time that you had to go to confession was uh, in in Lent on this occasion. And then the other thing that you had to do at the end of Lent was to take your annual communion on Easter Sunday. So these are the two things that the Church insists on for all adults. Confession once a year, followed by communion once a year. Um, but communion you only got uh, on Easter Sunday. You don't get it any other time of the year normally. And when you get it, you only receive the consecrated bread. So a little wafer, baked wafer of bread, and that's put straight into your mouth. So you can't do anything that you shouldn't do with it. You were then given a drink of unconsecrated wine. They can't give you consecrated wine because the belief is that in the mass, the bread and the wine become, each of them becomes, the body and blood of Christ. And in a congregation where you've got people of all kinds, and you may even have the village idiot there, you can't afford to have somebody slobbering Christ's blood all over themselves or all over the floor it's it's just not possible the bread is relatively easy uh, even then they have to guard against crumbs so when you receive the bread uh, somebody hold, two people hold a towel in front of your chin um and then the, the the wafer is popped in and that stops any bits of Christ getting on the floor but the wine is too um big a problem so you're given unsconsecrated wine just to wash the the um the wafer down, and that's your Easter communion. And those are the two things that you have to have every year: uh, confession and communion.
2: So just on the on the final part on the confession, then were, were there confession booths? Is that are they a feature of churches or was it?
1: No, confession booths were an invention of the Catholic Church in the 16th century. Medieval people were worried a lot about confession. Remember that the clergy were all celibate and they were worried about um, untoward things going on between a priest and and a a woman, particularly. So confession has to happen in church, in a part of the church that is public. (coughs) So it's either done in the nave of the church or just inside the uh, screen so that it can be visible. The the, the person who is uh, confessing kneels, Um, but doesn't look directly at the priest. The priest is sitting in a chair. He pulls his hood over his head so that he can't um, be seen particularly, and and he's told not to look directly at the the person confessing, and then the confession uh, takes place. But they didn't have uh, booths in which to do it until much later. And uh, there are examples of... uh, Priests trying to seduce women during confession, actually. So it's not a uh, it's not a ridiculous idea. Uh, it, it sometimes happened. Come into the vestry, and I'll do it there. and then you know things began to happen. Uh,
2: how do how do we know about that? is that is that in recorded in church courts? Yes, um,
1: some clergy are are brought up in 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 church courts um for that purpose. And uh, churches are places for sex, uh, as are churchyards. I mean, they, they they are, you see, going to church is, a, is an acceptable way of leaving home. So if you want to, leave, to, to meet up with a lover, uh, going to church, particularly on a, a weekday, is, is, a, is, is a good way of meeting up. And if you want a, a very quiet place, uh, a churchyard, particularly at night, it, it also has its attractions.
2: So hang on, I'm going. To, I'm going to have to go. So church, you said church is a place for sex. So people were were going into churches and having sex. How would how do we know that?
1: Well, um, there's a, a delightful book for the education of women that was written by a French knight in about 1380, and it's actually got a warning about having sex in church. And it tells the story of a man and a woman who did so under the altar. And they got stuck together and they couldn't be um, disentangled until the whole congregation had turned up and prayed for them. So they they got, you know, public um, humiliation. So if, if somebody is actually putting that in a book for the education of young women, I think we can um, reasonably expect that it might have happened
2: gosh well that's uh that's, that's unexpected um right uh last last one i think uh, which is a nice one to finish on from anna walsh on twitter um and anna would like to know how widespread atheism was or non-church attendance and we talked about church attendance just a little bit now but i suppose the wider the wider point of atheism uh versus piety what, what can you say about that how how pious were uh medieval people
1: well, atheism and piety, I suppose, are slightly different. I I don't think there were many people who would have openly said they did not believe in the existence of a God. There weren't books in circulation that would have said that, that you could have appealed to. So if you had said it, everybody would have said, well, you're just mistaken or mad and it would have come up when you next went to confession. But I think there was plenty of popular scepticism around. And I think that's something that historians have tended to underestimate. We haven't actually talked about heresy, but in, uh, in England did not have much in the way of heresy until the 1380s when an Oxford scholar called John Wycliffe began actually to challenge, in intellectual terms, a lot of the um, beliefs and and, um, rules of the church. And he attracted followers who became known as the Lollards, who believed that you should read the Bible in English, that you should um, live a a rather puritanical form of life, that you should not um, engage in what they called superstitions like pilgrimages or veneration of images and so on. And it's widely recognised that lollards were a a small minority of the population, I think. And so historians have tended to say, "Okay, everybody else was orthodox. I don't believe that. I believe that there was an awful lot of scepticism about. It must have been very hard to believe a lot of the church's dogmas. For example, the fact that uh, the priest at Mass has consecrated this way from this tiny chalice of wine and they are now the body and blood of Christ but look they, they go on looking like bread and wine um, so how can this be the church is insisting on it you get into trouble if you um if you disbelieve it but it's very hard to believe and um, we've got evidence that people found that hard to believe that they um, speculated um, about things like the Virgin Mary did she have other children this is something the Bible is rather actually uh, mysterious about isn't it We, we hear of James the brother of the Lord the church said, no, Mary was a virgin. She married an elderly man, Joseph. But look here, where where there other children? These are things the church didn't really like to get involved with, but people wondered about them. Was it really right for God to chuck Adam and Eve out of the um, Garden of Eden? We hear uh, one writer says, I've heard people discussing this. So there was scepticism, Around uh, and people did not um, believe everything they were told, uh, just as people didn't go to church uh, all the time as they were meant to do. Um, and there's this huge lay influence. I think that we uh, are constantly undervalue about medieval religion or religion in any period. We we think that it's all being stage managed by clergy, and that everybody is uh, is having to, to go along with that, unless they totally turn their backs on it, which they can do nowadays. But in fact, there's a tremendous amount of lay influence on what the clergy uh, do. I'll give you another example of this. Um, what happens if a baby dies before it's been baptised? Now, according to the uh, official church uh, dogma, it can't go to heaven. But then it hasn't sinned, so it can't go to hell. So it has to go to a place called limbo, which is on the edge of hell. And its punishment is not being burnt in fire or anything, but by the knowledge that it can never get to heaven. Well, that's all a terribly bleak way of looking at the death of a a newborn baby which is terribly traumatic for parents and people didn't go along with that you get scholars saying well there may be a a way around this Jesus talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit suppose the Holy Spirit baptizes every new child then it will go to heaven officially this is not church dogma but it's what some theologians are saying and what happens when dad is told by the parish priest you can't bury your newborn dead baby in the churchyard because it's not baptized dad goes along at night with a spade and he puts it in and we know that that happened
2: um nicholas this is absolutely fascinating it feels like we've only really Touch the surface of uh, of what we could have talked about here, but we've gone through um, most of the questions that we had in from our audience. Obviously, um, you've got loads more material in your book, going to church in medieval England. I suppose just a final point: is there anything that you would like people uh, people who aren't experts in the medieval church to to know about? Any any sort of final things? Any any last um, points that you'd like to make that uh, we should be we should be on top of?
1: Well, my belief is that human nature is unchanging. So the, the people of the medieval church were us. I mean, clearly they they, they did not know a lot that, that, that we know and they did not have a lot that we have. <laughs> but, but when you're trying to make the past very simple, it can't be simple. So people can't be all pious People can't be all church-going. Churches can't all be neat and clean and well-organised. There's always going to be a range because human nature is like that. And um, what I hope people will uh, do with histories is not only enjoy the difference of the past, because the difference of the past is interesting, what they, how they managed to work in their world, in their very different world, but also to recognise how similar people in the past were to people today.
0: That was Professor Nicholas Orme. His book, Going to Church in Medieval England, will be published by Yale on the 27th of July. As always, you can find a wealth of more material on the medieval world on our website. Just go to historyextra.com forward slash medieval. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman, and Brittany Colley. We'll be back tomorrow when Alex von Tunzelman will be giving her thoughts on the great historical statue debate. (laughs)